from un. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> from Unterlock and Public Radio, this is in natural selection. <sighs> all right, all right. You can do it, Dan. You got it. From Interlock and Public Radio, this is Unnatural Selection. I'm Dan Monshura. And I'm Morgan Springer. This special season of Points North is all about humans tinkering with the natural world. Right. Stories of mending our environment and meddling with it. But today's story isn't about what we've done. It's about what we're capable of. In 2010, the Food and Drug Administration was reviewing a controversial fish. While they were deciding if it was safe to eat, Lisa Murkowski was sounding the alarm. She's a U.S. senator from Alaska. I would ask again, you look very critically at this, the threat, I believe, to humans for for consumption of this bizarre fish. Murkowski's talking about genetically engineered salmon, or as she calls it, Frankenfish. This Frankenfish. You've got a Frankenfish. We refer to this GE salmon as Frankenfish. Frankenfish. I'm not going to say to my kids, eat this Frankenfish. Now, the Frankenfish's real name isn't as fun. It's Aqua Advantage Salmon. And it was developed by the biotech company Aqua Bounty using transgenic technology. So transgenic technology is technology in which you introduce a gene generally described as a foreign gene. That's Mark Walton, Chief Technology Officer for Aqua Bounty. You use a microinjection, a really, really thin needle under a microscope, and inject it into that embryo. Now, in the case of the so-called frankenfish, they used genes from a different salmon species and a fish called ocean pout. They inserted them into the embryo of an Atlantic salmon. And those genes are associated with growth hormones. That's why Aqua Advantage salmon reach market size twice as fast as wild Atlantic salmon. I want to say that again. Two times faster. Whew, double time. Anyway, in 2015, the FDA did approve it, and it was the first genetically engineered animal available for human consumption in the U.S. And in Canada. Salmon, the ocean's natural superfood, is about to come in a very unnatural variety. Health Canada, Health Canada has approved what critics are calling a frankenfish, and now a local member of Parliament... Now, all this frankenfish talk was going on during and just after the FDA's review. But six years later, Walton says that initial skepticism has mostly worn off. Aquabounty got caught up in the politics. The people who we're selling to right now, they're not hearing from consumers about genetically engineered fish. What they're hearing is, we've got a product that tastes good. Now, for the record, I haven't tasted it, so I can't confirm that. That's reporter Patrick Shea. Are you sure? Are you sure somebody didn't just slip frankenfish into your food? (laughs) Oh, man. That doesn't even make any sense. What do you mean, slip me the frankenfish? (laughs) Will you just respond to my question, please? No, nobody slipped the frankenfish into my food. That you know of. That I'm aware of. Not to my knowledge. How could you verify that you haven't tried it? Have you eaten in a restaurant? (laughs) You know? I'm not saying I wouldn't. I just haven't. And I don't want this to sound like an Aqua Bounty commercial, but it seems like Mark Walton is right. All the hullabaloo around this fish has sort of died down. Huh. I wonder why that is. Is it, you know, people just got over it sort of thing? I think that might be part of it. You know, it takes time for people to accept change. But whether you like it or not, genetic engineering is advancing fast. Aqua Bounty actually first made this breakthrough with salmon in the late 80s. It was groundbreaking at the time, but 
New technology has made genetic engineering easier, cheaper, more feasible. And that's led some to wonder how it might be used for conservation. And it led me to wonder what it could mean for a different fish, lake trout. Okay, here we freaking go, people. <laughs> Episode 7 of 7, Frankenfish. There's this spot in northern Michigan where the Jordan River winds its way through these steep ravines. It's a beautiful place, kind of tucked away in the hills on a dead-end road. It's pretty quiet out here. The North Country Trail, I don't know if you're a hiker at all, that's, it's right across the river there. I'm at the Jordan River National Fish Hatchery with Roger Gordon, the hatchery manager. We're talking trout. We're in this sort of warehouse that has long, skinny pools along the ground. Roger calls them raceways. All the raceways with white buckets have fish in them right now. We can see young fish, just a couple inches long, darting around in the water. Cool. We'll have to try to sneak up on them and we'll net some, because you won't really see. He walks slowly towards a pool, and in a flash, he scoops a net full of juvenile lake trout. Wow, first try. Yeah, look at that, done it a couple times. He pulls one out to show me as it flops around in his palm. There's about 40,000 in each one of these raceways. That's Last year, this hatchery alone raised 2.2 million lake trout, and it's just one part of a massive stocking operation by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The federal government spends tens of millions of dollars every year in direct lake trout restoration. You know, Lake Michigan is, uh, of the upper three lakes, probably the one that is relying on stocking the most. Roger says without stocking, there probably wouldn't be any lake trout in Lake Michigan. For more than 50 years, the lake's top native predator has been on life support. By 1960, they were gone. You can essentially say there were zero lake trout in Lake Michigan. That's Chuck Madenjan, a fisheries biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He says first, lake trout were overfished. Then they really collapsed under the pressure of invasive species. Those invasive species caught a ride to the Great Lakes in shipping vessels. Humans got the lake trout into all this trouble, and now we're spending a lot of time and money trying to fix it. Stocking is, has been uh, critical to, to try to bring them back. But even after all these years of stocking, there aren't many signs of lake trout reproducing on their own in the wild. Chuck knows this firsthand. He does surveys twice a year to study populations in Lake Michigan. And he's noticed that a certain strain of lake trout is doing a lot better in the wild. Strain meaning same species, different original location, and slightly different genetics. This one's called the Seneca strain, and they started stocking it in Lake Michigan in the 80s. Seneca Lake is a, a lake in upstate New York that has a, a native lake trout population in it. That strain somehow has the quality of being able to better evade lamprey attacks for whatever reason. After a breakthrough last summer, we're a lot closer to knowing that reason. That's because a PhD student at Michigan State University assembled the first ever reference genome for lake trout. That's like a map of a species' genetic makeup. And it can help scientists find out which specific genes are responsible for specific characteristics. The student who assembled the genome was Seth Smith. And to be clear, he didn't do it with genetic engineering in mind. He just wanted a deeper understanding of this species. Seth spins a pretty good metaphor for how hard it is to map a genome. 
you know, within every cell in an organism, you have a copy of the genome. And you can think of each copy of that genome as like a full set of encyclopedias. And then assembling a genome is kind of like shredding all those copies of the encyclopedia and then trying to piece back together one of the single copies from all of this, all of this nonsense you get. Mapping a whole genome used to be pretty much impossible for most geneticists, if not physically, then financially. But that has totally changed. In just the past 10 years, the price of sequencing a whole genome went from tens of millions of dollars to just a few hundred dollars. Seth's research could tell us why the Seneca strain does so much better than others. In fact, he might have figured it out already. Or at the very least, he's provided some great clues. He looked at trout that were part Seneca, part something else, and tried to find which Seneca genes might be favorable. So basically what we did is we looked for regions of the genome that had an excess of chromosome blocks from the Seneca strain. And what was really interesting is the genes within these regions were enriched for genes associated with regulation of vascular wound healing and um, swimming behavior. So kind of our hypothesis is that maybe the Seneca strain is doing better because they have an increased ability to either avoid or survive lamprey predation. If you listened to the last episode of this series, you already know that a sea lamprey is basically a blood-sucking monster fish. It's one of those invasives that hitched a ride on shipping vessels into the Great Lakes. Okay, this is starting to make a lot of sense because, like, sea lamprey cause wounds, right? Yeah, because they've got a bunch of sharp teeth. I I had a friend in college who called lampreys ouch noodles, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So if they can heal from those wounds, that's a plus, right? Yeah, and swimming skills. Maybe those could help them avoid lampreys in the first place. So if those specific genes are the reason for the Seneca strain's success, I want to know how that information might be used in hatcheries. Because their goal is to get lake trout to a place where they don't need our help anymore. Here's Roger Gordon again. Our goal is to put ourselves out of business. We want to establish self-sustaining populations of fish. And then once that's done, we back off and we do something else. We have a lot of problems. We have a whole list of animals that we can work on. Well, once this animal is done, it's restored, we'll move on to the next one. People like Roger have spent entire careers stalking lake trout. In Lake Superior, the population is fully recovered, and Lake Huron is well on its way. But Lake Michigan's another story. Its population still hasn't recovered. So what if there's another way, a faster way? What if there's a bold, new, controversial way to get lake trout back on their feet? or fins. What if we didn't need to spend so much time and energy on stocking? What if genetic engineering could be used for conservation? What if that's our ace in the hole for saving species from problems we started? What if we could take genes from the Seneca strain and insert them into other strains (laughs) to maintain genetic diversity and increase survival? All right, Patrick, I'm going to reel you in a little bit. Uh, That's a lot of what ifs. I know, I know. I'm just trying to emphasize that this really is a what if story. I don't want it to sound like scientists are about to let some frankentrout out into the wild. But, I mean, should they? Hmm. M- maybe. I, I, I hear you, and I got to just jump in and say, like, my gut reaction is no. And I think part of it's because of all the stories that we've been hearing, you know, where we're like, oh, yeah, we, we'll just do this little thing. We'll fix it. It'll be great. And then it's like, oh, actually, 
not great. Um, and I just don't know how we do something that seems so massive and don't just continue that pattern of unintended consequences. I mean, if, if, if humans cause the problem, is there a burden on humans then to try to be the solution? If they have the technology, you know. I think you guys are, are really capturing the split pretty well, right? Like th there's this ethical line between what we could do and what we should do. And that's really evident here with conservation genomics. You know, that, that's a hope in the midst of mass extinction for some people. But for others, it's a dangerous game. Playing God, right? Messing with the very fabric of the universe. And for me, it's just very hard to wrap my head around. I guess does that makes sense. I'm kind of blabbering a little bit. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, basically what you're saying is that a lot of the... the um, another question I had is, uh, it says that... Um, uh, like genomic approaches. I don't know. I'm just like, I mean, what, what, uh, uh, okay. One thing we have to acknowledge is that some form of genetic manipulation has been going on for a long time. Marty Cardos is a research geneticist with the National Marine Fisheries Service. In reality, we've been tinkering with nature profoundly for thousands of years. You know, we've taken teosinte and turned it into <laughs> i mean look what we've done with a lot of crop species what the heck is teosinte i had to look it up too uh it's a type of wild grass that eventually became corn through selective breeding teosinte has a two inch ear with only about 10 kernels and an ear of modern corn is usually about a foot long and has around 500 kernels and always gets stuck in your teeth exactly and I mean, think about all the selective breeding we've done in animals, too. Mm, yeah, livestock, like chickens, cows. Oh my gosh, dogs. Oh, that's a good one. Dogs is a huge one. What is a wiener dog? How, how did a wiener dog come to be? And you know, <laughs> I've heard like pugs have breathing problems because we've bred their faces so short. They do. I've seen it. Oh, yeah. They, they snore. They snort. So some form of genetic manipulation has been going on for a long time. That's the point. But what we're talking about today is different. Apparently, since we live in the future, it's now possible to extract a gene from one plant or animal and insert it into another, like Aqua Bounty did with salmon. So say there's a desirable trait you want a species to have, like, I don't know, random example, wound healing or swimming abilities. <laughs> right. Totally random example. Pulled it out of a hat. <laughs> yep. It's not really that crazy to imagine taking genes from the Seneca strain of lake trout and inserting them into other strains. Now, are any geneticists actually looking into that? The short answer is no. Kim Scribner is a professor at Michigan State. Seth, who mapped the trout genome, studied under him. In conservation, I think that people have been somewhat reluctant to embrace gene editing because of the fear that once these edited genes are in the natural environment, it's like the genie's out of the bottle and you really don't know what the potential effects of that are, you know, are gonna be. Marty Cardos agrees. He wrote an opinion paper a few years back called The Perils of Gene-Targeted Conservation. Marty says our technology might be outpacing our understanding. There's no recipe for exactly how to go about doing this. And, you know, the natural world is immensely complex, and it's often, it's 
difficult to predict how ecosystems will respond to something we do. And he says, even if we do get really good at this stuff, we won't be genomicking our way out of this anytime soon. You know, genomics is sort of a, an exciting new thing, but it can't change those really fundamental reasons for lots of populations not doing well. You know, and those reasons are environmental factors. You know, climate change, overexploitation, loss of habitat. Clearly, experts are pretty hesitant about using genetic engineering for conservation. But we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what threats to lake trout lie ahead. And we also don't know what geneticists might do with the reference genome. That's public information now. So then the question is, will someone decide to use it for genetic engineering? It might sound far-fetched, but like right now, there's even research going into bringing back extinct species. Are you serious? No way. Yeah, this is real, well-funded research. Geneticists at Harvard are trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth by combining its preserved DNA with modern elephant genes. And in Australia, geneticists want to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger, which settlers hunted to extinction. They just raised an extra $3.6 million for that project. Wow. That just, I mean, that's, it seems so wild, kind of crazy to think about. It just makes you think of what Marty Carter says, like, we can't predict. Like, what's the Tasmanian tiger resurrection being going to do on the planet? What's the woolly mammoth slash elephant going to do? The Franken-mammoth. It's wild. It does seem crazy, honestly, but some people want to bring back species just for the intrinsic value of having them around. And they feel like it's the right thing to do, especially if we caused their extinction. So there is some serious movement right now in conservation genetics, or genomics, or genetic engineering, or whatever. <laughs> Personally, I find these advancing technologies amazing, and interesting, and honestly promising. And again, I can't help but wonder, shouldn't we do everything we're capable of to right our wrongs? I asked Roger Gordon at the fish hatchery that question. <laughs> That's a very open-ended question, you know. Fishery biologists, for the most part, are a pretty conservative lot, especially ones as old as I am who have seen some of the problems we've had in the past where, as human beings, we thought we could improve upon Mother Nature. And most of those things turn out bad. That's kind of the essence of this whole series, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of the weevil, of us thinking like, oh, we've got this magical solution, and then wah, wah, totally doesn't work. That's episode one for you newbies, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought the same thing working on this story about the weevil. And what's really interesting is a lot of the people I talked with throughout the series keep bringing up this exact same phrase, and it comes from the field of medicine. We heard about it in episode one, and Marty Cardos mentioned it too. Medicine and conservation are very similar in ways. You know, medicine is sort of conservation of human life. And there's the idea of the Hippocratic Oath in medicine. That Hippocratic Oath, put simply, is first do no harm. Marty says just like physicians, conservationists should balance the risks and benefits of any intervention. The last thing a good doctor wants to do is hurt a patient when they're trying to help, right? And if you apply that medical principle to the environment, that means valuing our ecosystems as highly as our own bodies. And that's a pretty high bar. 
reporter Patrick Shea. This is the last episode of Unnatural Selection. But next week, we'll have an episode from another podcast we think you might enjoy. It's called Outside In, and it comes from New Hampshire Public Radio. Today's story was written and produced by Patrick Shea. It was edited by my co-host, Morgan Springer. Peter Payette is our consulting editor. And I'm Dan Wanshura. Music for this episode by Max Dragu, Marlon Ladine, and Santa. Aaron O'Malley did our logo. Unnatural Selection is a special season of our podcast, Points North. You can find more environmental stories from the Upper Great Lakes at our website, pointsnorthradio.org, or search Points North wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and while you're at it, please rate, review, subscribe, share, do all the things. It helps make more stories like this possible. And thank you so much for listening.